This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Calling all people who like to breathe clean air or cool off under a tree on a hot day. Tomorrow is Arbor Day. It's a chance to think about the huge role that trees play in our health, the health of our planet, and in combating climate change. Joining us with more is Lydia Scott, director of the Chicago Region Trees Initiative at the Morton Arboretum. Lydia, welcome. Hello, thank you. Also with us is Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. She is director of Loyola University Chicago's Baumhart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Hey, Karen. Hey, Sasha. We'll start with you, Karen. When you think about the importance of trees in our lives, what exactly comes to mind? When I think about it on a day like today and the leaves are coming out and some of the trees are flowering, I really think of the beauty and the way they help mark our seasons. But then I realized they're hard at work for us. So then I think about, you know, when we get to summer, I think I'm going to really enjoy some shade on a hot day. I'm going to appreciate that cooling. Yeah. All the time, I appreciate the clean air they're helping to create for us and all the other work like capturing carbon, which gets to that great challenge of climate change. And they're just so beautiful to look at, aren't they? (laughs) Absolutely. Rarely more than now. Yeah. Lydia, trees are also excellent at sequestering carbon. Can you remind us how? Yes, the uh, the leaf surface area on, on a tree actually is sort of the functional uh, element that takes in the carbon uh, dioxide from the air and, and transfers that into the system of the tree, converting it to long-term carbon that's stored in the tissues of the tree overall. So those leaves, uh, when we think of surface area, obviously the larger the leaf, the more surface it has and the more uh, carbon and pollution that it can pull out of the air. So that's how they function in, in helping to reduce carbon dioxide. Can you explain the issue of large diameter trees getting cut down? Well, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of trees being cut down. I mean, obviously, we're concerned that when the larger ones are are taken down, because the larger the tree, the larger the benefits Mm -hmm. um, that that tree provides. So for us, one of the biggest takeaways that we want people to get is that if we can get the trees that we have to grow bigger, in size, they can provide more benefits for us so that when we lose one of these large trees in the landscape, it does have a dramatic impact that, you know, there's tons of carbon that are stored in those tissues that are now being, you know, taken off, maybe chopped into mulch, which then goes back into the atmosphere, or the tree itself is no longer able to intercept stormwater. So we're seeing more flooding in those locations uh, where that tree is missing. And then the air quality benefits that the tree provides and heat reduction as well. So when you lose a large tree, you're losing a lot of benefits. The UN has uh, declared this the decade of restoration. So Karen, what is habitat restoration? 
And why is it so important? You know, absolutely. You know, building on what, what Lydia was talking about, habitat restoration, it's, it's essentially the rehabilitation of an area to help create or support a functioning ecosystem. And so the, the UN calls it, you know, prevent, halt, and reverse the degradation that's there. It's to meet the needs of people in nature and to do it simultaneously. And it can happen in any kind of habitat, so prairies or wetlands or trees, areas that are kind of native to here, uh, but also oceans, savannas, forests. And it's really about creating that healthy structure and that healthy ecosystem for all of us. So if you think really locally, you know, there might be an example of a little bit of natural habitat being restored along the lake, as an example, or deep in our neighborhoods. Um, that might provide some habitat for some yeah. migrating birds. Well, it also helps us when we think about what's outside our window. Lydia, speaking of local oak trees, they're native to this region, but uh, only 17% of oak trees that were here prior to uh, European settlement are actually still standing. Talk about why it's vital to increase the number of oaks we have here and, and how you're restoring that population. Well, the oak ecosystems in our region, as you mentioned, are severely in decline, and it's not only in size, but even in the species. We see in the natural areas where we have oaks that we have these larger oaks. For instance, the, the average diameter of a lo an oak tree in the region is 18 inches. We're not seeing the smaller oaks that are coming up. And so we need to do what we can in order to promote the development and the ability of those younger trees to grow up because it's, well, it's important to have diverse species in, a, in an, an ecosystem. It's also important to have diverse age classes so that we're not seeing these large, big oaks that we've enjoyed and, and grown up with now disappearing from the landscape so the next generation doesn't have those. So it's really important for us as we think you know, about the natural areas that we have, about the function of oaks and how we can encourage their ongoing growth and development, but also how we as property owners or individuals that live adjacent to those areas, what kinds of species of trees that we're planting in our yards that can help promote and reconnect some of those oak ecosystems because oaks are so important to our natural heritage here. Yeah, 17%. How concerned does that number leave you, Lydia? Well, it's, it's concerning. We started with a million acres in the 1830s, and we're down to 117,000 acres across the region. And, and why it's particularly important is that we used to have large tracts of oak ecosystems, like more than 1,000 acres. We do not have any landscapes now that are more than 1,000 of connected oak ecosystems uh, in acres right now. And so we need to be thinking about in the future, what can we do in order to, to continue to support that? We want to be able to support the forest preserve districts in the Chicago region so that they're able to maintain and care for our oaks. That means removing invasive species and creating opportunities for these young oaks to be able to take off and grow. But we also need to be thinking about the impacts of invasive species that are on our properties, that those berries are being you know, blown by birds into our forest preserves and dropped there where they're also prohibiting the, use, the development of those oaks. Mm -hmm. And Karen, the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, uh, it recently published a series of reports that was uh, talking about the importance of mitigating and adapting to climate change. Talk about why we have to do this simultaneously. We have to do it simultaneously because while climate change has started, we don't know where it's going to go yet. What happens next is really up to us. And trees and nature can help on both sides of this. So you, know, you talked about why we have to adapt. Well, we know the weather has changed. We know, you know since the 80s, each decade has been warmer than the previous one. 
Uh, and we know that nature can help us on those hot days by providing cooling. Uh, we know there are more storms. We know that trees in nature can help absorb some of that water, uh, but they can also help us prevent the most severe impacts. And that's really the mitigation side. Um, as an example with trees, uh, Lydia's talked about this, they can essentially reduce emissions by pulling carbon out of the air already and capturing it in their tissues. Mm -hmm. And they can also help us use less by shading our home. So we use less air conditioning. So here in our city in a garden, the garden part can actually help us. Yeah. Well, that was Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. Karen, thanks so much. Thanks so much. I want to bring another voice to the conversation to uh, adapt to climate change we need a variety of approaches, and trees as well as wetlands are important parts of that. So joining us now to fill us in with a bit more is Paul Botts. He is executive director of the Wetlands Initiative. Hi, Paul. Welcome. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I want to say that was a very good, really wonderful, uh, short summary uh, answer to the question of what it <laughs> means to do res restoration. Good. I'm, I'm glad you you approve. Uh, listen, the, the Chicago area, Paul, and what is now Indiana, used to be covered in wetlands. So can you just describe this ecosystem for us? So wetlands refers to any, uh, there's a lot of varieties of wetlands, but it refers to any piece of ground which is wet, uh, either all the time or regularly, intermittently, and for a very long time, so a long time scale. So, uh, and it actually, over time, wetlands in a given place actually changes the soil chemistry. It leaves behind a footprint after it's been drained or whatever's happened to it, uh, which is hydric soils, and that's part of how we know where they all were. And we know from hydric soils and some other uh, information that the area that is now Illinois and Indiana in nature was up absolutely threaded with wetlands. Uh, I certainly, I'm, maybe we all from our you know, school days impression would have come away with the idea that there's, you know, there's forests over there and then there's mountains over there and there's prairie over there and then over here is the big wetlands and that's how it works. Mm -hmm. It's not at all how it works. In fact, wetlands are threaded throughout the natural world and particularly are part of the world, the vast, flat, tall grass, prairie, oak, savanna landscape that uh, mm -hmm. is what this part of the world has uh, developed and had since the last glaciations. Chicago's paved over them, right? More or less, yeah, mostly, and drained them uh, and done all kinds of uh, very complicated and in some cases very impressive engineering to uh, make it possible to have this giant metro area in, uh, mostly in and on what was uh, a large swath of wetlands. Lydia, we, we often think of nature as something that is outside, outside of our homes, uh, in, in specific designated places, and that different kinds of nature, in this case forests and, and wetlands, that they're separate. Do you see these landscapes as separate, or do you find value in sort of seeing them as interconnected? No, they're very much interconnected. I mean, if you walk out in your backyard after a rain event, you can see the puddles and the water that sits in your backyard. And if you have trees back there, they're also working to uh, relieve the, the, the landscape of that water by inter intercepting and pulling up some of that water. But we see, you know, even when you walk through the forest preserves, you'll see the streams and, and rivulets that run through our forest preserves where we have uh, wetland areas adjacent to those and where we have depressions and ponds and those kinds of things. And we have trees all around them. So it's very much an interconnected network of landscape. Paul, wetlands are, as you've described, inherently flexible. Can you talk more about the role that they play in, in preventing the flooding 
that uh, we can get from severe storms and, and also uh, improving water quality. Absolutely, and both of those values are central to the very high importance that wetlands uh, play and can play for adapting to the climate that is already changing around us. So much as was just discussed, right, so trees play this enormous role in sequestering carbon and mitigating climate change, and they also play a role in adaptation. Uh, we sort of flip the ratio around a bit when we talk about wetlands. So wetlands actually do sequester lots of carbon per acre, but of mm -hmm. course the challenge is we're not going to have hundreds of millions of, of wetlands uh, in the developed world. What wetlands are very important for and very good at is helping us adapt to climate change. And the two dimensions you just mentioned are really sort of the front of the spear, the point of the spear, I think, is the phrase. So mm -hmm. water. I mean, wetlands inherently are all about water. And the more wetlands we can restore and maintain, the more ability we're going to have to hold water and we're going to get more and more water, right? The water is coming. It's the, the storm systems are flashier. The weather is flashier, as the engineers say. That makes the rivers flashier. It makes the whole thing different. So wetlands, uh, having more restored wetlands, more places, helps us manage that water much better in a very natural way. And it brings all these other benefits, such as treating various kinds of pollution of our water. We're very concerned about nutrient pollution uh, in this part of the world. Uh, you've probably read about the, 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 the hypoxic zone down in the Gulf of Mexico and uh, the return of hypoxic zones in bodies of water like Lake Erie. And a lot of that has to do with modern agriculture, and which has had this sort of productivity revolution. But on the other hand, there's these massive unwelcome side effects. Wetlands are a really effective tool if we can restore them and have them yeah. for intercepting that water and dealing with taking up that nutrient pollution naturally. Let me stop you there, Paul, and have you clarify, what is a hypoxic zone? So it's sometimes loosely in the headlines referred to as a dead zone, which is not technically accurate, but it's sort of close enough. So what happens is, you know, we all need nutrients. You do, I do, all the plants, everything, nutrients. So, but you can have too many nutrients. So this is mainly in that what we're talking about here is nitrates or phosphates, so nitrogen or phosphorus, and it can overwhelm a body of water, whether it's a river, a lake, a portion of the Gulf of Mexico, it can just absolutely overwhelm it and cause enormous algae blooms. And then the algae just bloom to an unnatural degree, and then they die. And so all of that process takes a lot of the oxygen out of the water. That's the hypoxic part. And so then many, many other things, almost everything else, can't live in that water anymore for a while. And it leaves behind also very unsightly and sometimes toxic a whole lot of dead algae, which is also not good. Yeah. And so this is a syndrome that we get when we overwhelm bodies of water with unnaturally high amounts of nutrients. Are there wetlands in the city of Chicago? Sure there are. There absolutely are wetlands. Of course, they uh, vary in quality. Uh, we have we are blessed with our enormous and uh, uh, both our city park system and our forest preserve system, and both of those agencies are involved in uh, restoring and managing wetlands. And my organization is very involved in working with uh, the park district in particular down in the Calumet region. There's also, as was mentioned before, there are small wetlands or intermittent wetlands, but much of the city of Chicago, most of the city of Chicago and the suburbs, of course, are what we sort of call armored, meaning 
it's all concrete, it's asphalt, we have filled in, we have covered, we have uh, removed a lot of the wetlands. Yes, this very much yeah. contributes to the flooding problems we have. Lydia, we, um, we know that in many low-income and highly industrialized neighborhoods, there are less trees, um, fewer trees than in more affluent parts of town with, with higher populations of white residents. Can you talk about the effects that this could have on Chicagoans in areas with low tree density, especially as we're looking ahead to what's sounding like it's going to be a very hot summer? Yes. I mean, we we found that what we call our our vulnerable populations are often very uh, commonly found in areas with higher pervious surface. I'm, I'm sorry, impervious surface, higher percentages of poor air quality and flooding events. And then their canopy is lower, all things that, that tree canopy and trees can help with as far as intercepting that, that rainwater, cleaning our air, and reducing temperatures just by virtue of how trees function and creating shade. So it's very much an equity issue. And uh, Mayor Lightfoot has, has seen that this is a particularly significant issue and has focused her tree planting initiative to really drive increased canopy in under-resourced neighborhoods in the city of Chicago in order to help offset that. Because in addition to creating, you know, areas that are prone to flooding and increased temperatures, it also impacts people's health. So you see higher instances of asthma and other health-related issues due to air quality challenges that trees could be helping uh, mediate. I see. Is that why you you plant trees near schools that are, are near highways to sort of create a buffer? Yes, we're working on what's called a vegetative buffer project where we've identified 26 schools within 500 feet of expressways in the city of Chicago. And we're working to construct vegetative buffers or, or trees, rows of trees adjacent to those expressways in order to get those trees to capture the air pollution before it reaches the schools and help you know improve air quality there. What will it take, Lydia, to, to get more large growth trees in our region? Is it a matter of less development? Well, it's, it's really a matter of more policies and protection for trees because we find as communities develop their ordinances and regulations, a developer comes in and decides he wants to cut down an entire woodland in order to create a parking lot or something else. If there are not laws and policies in place to restrict that, it, it's very difficult to prohibit that kind of development. And so we see it as really crucial that elected officials see the significance and the importance of keeping trees in their communities to help address some of these issues. And therefore, if they can put those policies in place, then they have a structure in place in advance of having these situations come up. Paul, I'll ask you the same question. What will it take to foster more wetlands in our area? Well, I think it needs, uh, uh, it requires overcoming a couple of uh, sort of basic public perceptions of wetlands, for one thing. Flooding, local flooding, flooded basements makes people crazy. This is a fact. It's a political fact and a local community fact. And at first glance, uh, putting back some wetlands does not look like part of a solution to that. It looks like part of a problem. You want to put more water where? In fact, it is part of the solution because wetlands are giant sponges. But you have to explain that. You have to also get over some other impressions. Uh, one thing we get all the time at the Wetlands Initiative is the thing about mosquitoes. So you you people want to create new mosquito farms in my community? What are you doing? Well, no, that's not right. A healthy functioning wetland is not at all a mosquito farm. Mm -hmm. It's the really bad drainage ditch wetlands that 
generate all the mosquitoes. So you have to overcome some of that, and then you also have to be very careful and thoughtful because if you're restoring wetlands, this is a disadvantage we have compared to restoring and enhancing the urban forest. With wetlands, you inherently do have to control and deal with water. So there's a diff you have to have engineering as well as ecology. There's a lot of challenges. All that said, once you start to get to people understanding what wetlands can bring, scenic beauty and all the other benefits, they actually turn around and become very positive. And we're having that experience right now in some of the urban areas. That's Paul Botts, Executive Director of the Wetlands Alliance, and Lydia Scott, Director of the Chicago Region Trees Initiative at the Morton Arboretum. Thank you both. So we've covered why forest and wetland restoration is so important in adapting to climate change. But what does that look like in practice? Well, to find out, you don't have to look any further than Lincoln Park's North Pond. The pond was constructed in the mid-1880s, and since then, it's slowly filled in with sediment runoff. In some places, the pond is only a few feet deep. The Lincoln Park Conservancy raised more than $7 million to restore it, and that work starts today. Joining us now with more on the project is the Conservancy's Executive Director, Doug Widener. Welcome, Doug. Hi, Sasha. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for joining us. Also here, Lauren Umick, Urban Ecologist and Project Manager for the Chicago Park District. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Sasha. Doug, for those who aren't very familiar with North Pond, can you just start us off by describing what it looks like right now? Yeah, so North Pond is a wonderful natural treasure in Lincoln Park. It's a a natural area designated by the Chicago Park District. Over 250 migratory bird species, lots of great uh, amphibians, insects. But the pond is literally loved to death. The shoreline has been compromised. Um, erosion and runoff have filled in the pond to, like you said, it's only about two to three feet deep. So the water quality is compromised um, and the habitat needs restored. And so uh, that's where the project kicks in. We'll be dredging the pond to deepen it to about eight feet deep to allow for oxygen turnover and lots of great habitat and oxygen for um, aquatic species, softening the slope of the shoreline to reduce erosion and runoff, and planting that shoreline with um, emergent plants to add new habitat types for birds, insects, uh, uh, and aquatic species. And so we're clear, this is a constructed pond, right, Doug? Yeah, it is a constructed pond, yes. It was built in the 1880s as a part of Lincoln Park's expansion. Lauren, why is this restoration needed? The, I think you make a great point. So because it is constructed and because it's in the heart of the city, as with a lot of our natural areas, these natural areas face a lot of impact um, by people, both positively, those that, that steward it, and negatively. So it's been constructed and it's a little bit old at this point. Um, and so it needs some maintenance. So, so this is time for, for this site to, to sort of have some extra, uh, more heavy-handed love mm-hmm. in the next couple of years. Yeah, and, and the pond actually has to re- be uh, refilled with city water since it has no inlets or outlets. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So currently, so that the pond doesn't get too shallow and, and dry up, um, we do supplement that water with city water. So this restoration will help that. So one of the elements of that is putting in sort of an automatic on and off valve um, to the water. So if it ever does get low enough that we need to add water, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we won't sort of overfill the bathtub, um, if you will. 
Um, one of the other cool elements is adding under drains to other areas in the park. So stormwater is a very valuable resource. Water is a valuable resource. So we'll be able to capture some of that water as it falls onto parkland and redirect it rather than going to city stewards and mm-hmm. storm sewers. Um, we can direct it to the pond. So that's a better rainwater is better quality than, than tap water for, for aquatic and it life. Doesn't, the city water doesn't cause any problems for, for wildlife and ecology? If it is used in excess, it can. Um, one of the things that works for us is fluoride. Um, our, our teeth benefit from that. Plants, animals don't really care about fluoride. Right. There's some additions that are that are for people's benefit that are relatively inert for nature, but most rainwater is really the best. So the more rainwater we can have in North Pond, the better. Doug, what kind of wildlife call the pond home? Well, like I said, about 250 uh, different uh, migratory bird species, lots of insects, turtles, frogs, uh, other amphibians. And, um, you know, as, as nature comes back to the city, we see a variety of other wildlife as well. The, the goal of the restoration is to preserve all, all of those great species and create additional habitat so that over time we see even more species coming, more water-loving birds, more insects to really boost up nature and make sure that the ecosystem is healthy for both resident species and new species that may find their way there. Yeah. Lauren, can you dig into the different phases of the restoration project? Because I understand it's going to involve dredging and native plantings. Yeah. So the first steps will be really sort of that more construction-y look of things. So dredging, as you mentioned, um, the pond has been sort of filling up with erosion for the last hundred plus years. So at its deepest, it's about three feet. So we'll have some sections of the pond that will be deeper, um, about eight feet deep. That helps the water be a little bit cooler, um, a little bit more refugia there. So it'll start with that dredging. That's that's sort of the bulk of the work that will happen through the summer is, is dredging out, making some of the pond deeper and being able to hold some more water. And then as we get towards the fall, that's when we will start putting in some of those new plants. Once, once sort of the, the basic shape, uh, if you will, of the pond is together, then mm-hmm. we'll start reintroducing um, a lot of the native plants that will stabilize that soil, that will provide that extra habitat. That will take, you know, a couple of years to develop over time. I was skimming the maps and and plans online, and I noticed one part about lining the pond with a polymer. What does that mean? Yeah, so one of the things to to preserve uh, the loss of city water is that the pond is directly connected to groundwater, and we're losing a lot of that water to groundwater. So this is a natural polymer um, powder, basically, that we spray into the pond when it's low. It'll sink to the bottom and bind with the sediment, and that, that alone will create a natural barrier to preserve, preserve about 80 to 85% of the water from being lost. And then that's, that's a natural substance that doesn't harm wildlife, and it needs to be re- reapplied about every 7 to 10 years. And so as a part of our ongoing maintenance and stewardship of the pond, we'll definitely um, be planning for that in the future. It, it doesn't take much to apply, but that's an important piece of this water conservation strategy with the, with the pond's restoration. Doug, can you help us understand how can the pond provide ecosystem services and, and climate change mitigation better after this rest- restoration's finished? Yeah, great question. De- definitely by by adding more native plants and trees that serve as ways to, to absorb carbon is certainly an important piece of that. And you'll see that happening, I think, in general with the park district's plan to add more trees in the park uh, in general and around North Pond, certainly uh, 
a big help with carbon sequestration and climate mitigation. We see the natural areas throughout the Lincoln Park and all the parks being an important part of, of doing this on a micro scale. So it's a very important piece. And as we see more trees being added through the restoration and after, uh, that helping to uh, advance carbon or climate mitigation strategies. Mm-hmm. Lauren, I want to circle back to an, an earlier point you were making when we discussed installing drains in, in Lincoln Park to, to feed stormwater into the pond. Is that essentially playing a dual role then, keeping the pond full and then? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, just to add to the questions on on climate change. So so I come from um, the academic world before I I joined the park district. And one of the um, one of the models suggested for Illinois with storms is that we're going to see 10 percent more precipitation. And that doesn't necessarily mean every time it rains, it'll be 10 percent more water or that there'll be 10 percent more storms in a year. Um, the way that seems to be coming is more sort of pulsy, heavy rainstorms and then periods of drought. So sort of being able to capture that water again and, and, and direct it to North Pond is good for North Pond in general, but also for the city. The more we can kind of capture that stormwater within what we would call our green infrastructure. So places where we have plants, um, healthy soils growing, where we can keep it out of the storm sewers, the better that sort of helps the city sort of be ready for some of these increased storm events. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that includes that, that carbon and that, that extra climate change ecosystem services mitigation is, is not just trees, but also a lot of these herbaceous plants. You know, a lot of our native plants, they can get very tall, but one of the best features of them is these extremely deep roots. So their roots can go very deep and they can capture a lot of water, retain a lot of that water and carbon um, and then again, I, I come from sort of a soil biodiversity. So there's actually, we, we look at all of the biodiversity above ground, flowers, grasses, birds, frogs, turtles, but there is a huge diversity um, of wildlife below the ground. And that could also help with some of our uh, climate change resilience. And Lauren, some parts of this plan have yet to be funded. Is that right? Like um, yeah. building new boardwalks? Right. So the the main focus at the moment is for restoring the ecosystem of North Pond. So that the dredging, the planting, sort of the ecosystem components. There are other components that are designed and and sort of shovel ready um, that just aren't funded. And those include some boardwalks and casting pier improvements that'll improve people's ability to interact. They'll still be able to walk around Pond, but have some more close interactions. Um, we're ready to go for those when when we have the funding available. Yeah, where has the money come from so far? So the money has come primarily from private sources. Seven point three million dollars raised from over five hundred donors from around the city and the community. Oh wow! Uh, and that and then Alderman Smith last week at our press events, uh, Alderman Michelle Smith from the forty third ward offered fifty thousand dollars as a gap filler for our last part of our budget. So a little bit of city money coming in at the end to wrap it up, but primarily private dollars. 500-plus donors. 500-plus donors. When's this project going to be done? This fall. Can folks... But, but, go ahead. I just say, but by the end of the year, we're, we're saying late fall. Late fall. And can people still visit the, the pond while they, the construction is underway, Doug? Yes. So the pond will be open throughout the construction. There'll be certain parts that when we're working in a certain area that may be protected from, from folks being hurt. But otherwise, the pond will be accessible uh, throughout. The park pass will be accessible throughout the project. Our goal is to minimize the impact on wildlife and people while we're doing the restoration. 
That's Doug Widener, executive director of the Lincoln Park Conservancy, and Lauren Umick, urban ecologist and project manager for the Chicago Park District. Doug and Lauren, thank you both. That's all for today's Reset Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, give us a rating. It helps other listeners just like you find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll have a new episode for you tomorrow, right here on your feed. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.